0: Alright, good morning Reach Montreal. I know this is a bit strange and different for us, but given some of the precautions being taken in an effort to just limit the spread of coronavirus, um, we have postponed our uh, formal gathering together in person, and so what we wanted to do is um, just respect, especially the most vulnerable of our city And uh, take all the the right precautions, be wise, uh, be prudent about this, Um, not out of panic or fear, but out of love um, for our neighbor. And uh, that's how we're going to do it until uh, we hear differently. So we're going to try to do our best to provide audio and video um, resources for you over the coming weeks as things unfold. Uh, But today we want to start a new series. We want to keep going. With 2020 and keep moving along in the topics and texts that we are going to be studying together. And today we start a new series called Money Talks Jesus and Money. And a few disclaimers for this series. So often when the church talks about money or addresses money, there's so much baggage and so many negative experiences with religion and money or the church and money. So I just wanted to share a couple disclaimers about this series and give you a little bit of the the kind of the why and the heart behind a series like this. First of all, uh, we're not doing this series because Reach Montreal isn't giving. We're not doing this series because our giving is low or that we're financially unhealthy as a church. Uh, We are growing in this area, but we do still need to grow in this area. So we're doing this series uh, because we want to look specifically and be faithful to Jesus' teaching on one of the most important topics throughout all of the Bible. Secondly, as your pastor, I want you to not just do well with everything that you have and stewarding what you have and investing everything you have, but I want you to excel in this. I want you to excel in how you think about, how you use, how you um, take and invest everything that God has given you. So this is an important topic to regularly come back to as a church to check kind of on our heart and on our mind and on our thinking and on our lives as stewards. And third, if you're new. To our church, uh, or you're not a member of our church, or especially if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, we are not asking for your money. Um, We do give towards the work and mission and vision of Reach Montreal, uh, but we don't do that because God needs our money. Um, But God does have a lot to say about our money. And so as a church, uh, we never um, ask for resources or money from people that are not already a part of our community um, or who are not already in line with and excited about what we are doing as a church. And last, uh, I believe that this series has the potential to not only challenge and change our hearts um, and challenge and change our thinking, but I think that this series also has the opportunity to cause a lot of collateral beauty Um, to change our city, to change our church. And I think Our heart and our vision as a church is to always be not just a church that's kind of uh, paying bills and taking care of things for us, but is always looking ahead and outwards and forwards to be a church planting church, to be a church that meets needs locally and nationally and globally. And we have um, already several things that we're excited about that we do annually give to. Um, And for us, our fiscal year ends at the end of May. And so this is always a time in the year where we're approaching our last quarter quarter to reevaluate, to just step back individually and corporately to say, how do we um, use what God has given us best? How do we take the gospel outwards? How do we faithfully steward and use everything that God has given us for his glory? And to, to just point back to him, because it comes from him. So there you go. Those are my disclaimers. Uh, those are my disclaimers about this series. If you have any other questions or whatever, we would, would want to talk about this um, as members or as somebody who's just kind of checking at our church or even somebody who's just checking out Jesus and his teachings. I would love to do that. But as we jump in, let me start with a question. Let me ask. First, how do you feel about money right now? How do you feel about money? When you just kind of look and just emotionally and mentally, when you just think about money right now, whether it's it's your own money or it's it's possessions or things that you have or all your resources, how do you feel? Maybe some of you are stressed. Maybe you're in a, in a season where, where things are tighter than they ever have been. <clears throat> Maybe some of you are anxious and you're worried about money or where it's going to come from or the future and what, what the future holds for you and your career <clears throat> and your livelihood uh, some of you might just be numb and just kind of blocking it out, not really wanting to think about it, whether it's because you've had negative experiences with money or you were taught certain things about money. Uh, others of us, we're happy. We're in a good spot. we We are sitting kind of flush with with our budget and our and our livelihood and our lifestyle. And maybe others of us, we we love it. It's just like we want we want more of it. Uh, I want to get it. I want to use it. So first question is how do you feel about money right now? I want you to kind of locate that. And secondly, if money were no object, what would you buy? If money were no object at all, you had endless supplies of it. Like Scrooge McDuck from DuckTales growing up. At the end of every episode, he would would dive headfirst into this vat of money. If you were Scrooge McDuck, what would you buy? What are the top three things that come to mind for you? That if you could just write checks and use money for anything, what would they be? What would come to mind? Now, the reason why we start with these questions is because it helps us understand some of the beliefs that already are there in our heart and our mind and underlying the decisions that we make day to day and week to week with our money, with our resources, with our possessions, with everything that we have And the Bible speaks about this constantly. Money and wealth and material possessions is one of the most repeated topics in all the Bible. It talks about wealth and possessions and material things more than 2,000 times. More than heaven and hell and prayer and faith combined. Now that's startling when you think about it that big topics like eternal destiny in heaven and hell and, and important disciplines like prayer and faith and trusting God combine, don't touch, the amount of times that the Bible speaks about, teaches on, and warns us of this allure, the power and impact and influence of money. And Jesus is no different. 11 of Jesus's 39 parables address issues ...related to money. 25% of all of Jesus' teachings. That's one in four sermons. That would be like us as a church... ...talking and teaching about money... ...once every four weeks. The only thing actually... ...that Jesus teaches about more... ...than money... ...is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And even then, many times... ...when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God... ...it's about socioeconomic realities... ...related to a kingdom people... To the idea that if we are following after Jesus and he is our Lord and King, that it changes us as a people and we use what we have differently because we live a part of a different kingdom. Now, why? Why would the Bible generally and Jesus specifically spend so much time and energy talking about money and possessions? Well, simply... Because what we do with what we have shows what we value most. What we do with what we have shows us what we value most. So how we think about, relate to, interact with, and use everything that makes our life up shapes our life but also speaks about our life. Money does matter. Possessions do matter. Why? Not because they matter in and of themselves, but because they point us to what matters. And also, not only does the Bible speak about this a lot, but the flip side of this is that the the sin, the error spoken about most in Scripture is greed. And just take that in for a second. Not lust, not sexual sin, not homosexuality, not anger, Not hypocrisy or judgmentalism, but greed. The Bible warns us about the power of greed in our life. The power of greed to blind us from what is truly valuable. The power of materialism to numb our heart and lead us into apathy so that we grow insulated to the needs that are around us and only think about what is important to us. And in a real way, when you go back to Genesis in the garden, greed is really the root of the original sin. The original sin isn't about doing something bad. It's about wanting more than what God gave. And often today when greed is spoken about, you have a maybe a particular person in mind, kind of Wall Street or or someone that has way more than you have. And that you and I couldn't be um, greedy. That our heart really isn't affected by greed. But I think it's because greed often gets passed off as, well, I'm just being, being careful with my money. I'm trying to be wise with my investments. I'm just living my life now and working hard now so I can enjoy it later. I'm saving for the future and for a rainy day. And on and on we could go. But really, what hides deeper in that is a desire for accumulation. A desire for more and better. And a desire that really stems from insecurity. Greed is notoriously difficult to see in ourselves and others. And it ends up eroding our ability to empathize. Eroding our ability to care for others. And keeping us from sacrificing what we have for those who don't have. Tim Keller wrote a book a few years ago called Counterfeit Gods. And he addresses this really well. Listen to what he says. Nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi, the money God's mission, includes blindness to our own heart. Now, Jesus' warnings about money are equally strong and about greed are equally clear. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says this very strongly. Beware, look out, be watchful, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Guard yourself, actively guard yourself against every kind of greed. Meaning there's lots of different ways that greed comes out. That greed kind of shows up and leaks out of us for many different things. And if you remember in the Ten Commandments, the idea of coveting desiring our neighbor's stuff that ultimately greed can be something that culturally we're we're not aware of and we're surrounded by constantly and that does affect us today ultimately you and I living here where we are in 2020 in Canada in North America we don't think we're greedy we don't think we're materialistic or self-indulgent. Why? Because we live here. We are the products of our culture. The teleprompter of our culture just reads a certain way. And we are quite literally living as part of and inside one of the wealthiest civilizations of history. And for us, it's hard to see materialism or self-indulgence or greed in ourself because there's always someone else with more. There's always someone else with better than what I have. Someone with a nicer car or you know, a TV screen in their fridge door or that coach bag or those sneakers or that much savings or that kind of investment. And so there's always someone else with more. And when we live in a, a culture where coveting other people's things is the norm, we're impacted by that. We're impacted deeply by that. So we don't enjoy what we do have. We end up longing for more of what we don't have. And so it's hard for us to see this today. And so pastorally, I want us to kind of lean into this and, and just prayerfully be honest with ourselves about, well, maybe, yeah, maybe there's something going on in my heart about this. Maybe there is something deeper In my heart that is affected by this cultural phenomenon that we're witnessing because if we're honest and we look globally at the reality you and I are the wealthy we are the rich you and I do have more than what we need and that is the definition we're wealthy because we have more than what we need there's lots of things we want but we have what we need. There's a few statistics that i I often will share when I talk about this topic and and again, statistics can be helpful, but statistics statistics don't change your heart, but they can help kind of change our mind so here's a couple If you and I make more than thirty four thousand dollars annually, we are in one percent of the world's earnings. We are the one percenters. If you have a house to go home to, food in the fridge, electricity for that fridge, money in your bank, we are richer than 75% of the world. You and I are someone's Jeff Bezos, someone's Elon Musk, someone's Bill Gates. But it's hard for us to see this because of where we live. And it's especially difficult for us to see it living in the suburbs. Suburbia is a, is a great thing. There's great things about living in the suburbs, but there's also things that come with it. There's a price to pay living in the suburbs. We're going to talk more about this later in the series, but just looking at what the suburbs kind of do and the environment that the suburbs are, the suburbs end up insulating us from material poverty, Usually, material poverty is concentrated in urban core, in urban core cities, and the suburbs are intentionally on the outskirts of an urban core, protected by white fences and immaculate green lawns and manicured families and specialty coffee and private schools. So what ends up happening is the suburbs become its own socioeconomic bracket, that just kind of sit on the outskirts of a city so that we don't often see some of the material poverty and some of the material needs that are the reality of a city life. Jared Wilson writes in The Imperfect Disciple about this and about the impact that the suburbs have on a Christian's thinking and and society as a whole. Listen to what he says. The suburbs tend to smother the Christian spirit. The message of the suburbs, in a nutshell, is self-empowerment, self-enhancement, self-fulfillment. Self Self is at the center, and all things serve the self. The primary values of suburbia are convenience, abundance, and comfort. In suburbia, you can have it all, and you can get it made to order in a supersized cup with an insulated sleeve. I think Jared Wilson's right, that we don't even know how much this affects us, that it smothers something about the Christian spirit without us even knowing it. And to live in the suburbs and deny that a, a message – being preached at us daily about self enhancement and self fulfillment, and thousands of times a day being told that we should get ours and that we should live our dreams and that we should go after it and that we should live our truth and do what makes us happy. If we are in denial that that has an impact on how we live day to day and how we relate to what we have, then I do think we're fooling ourselves. I think that there is something about living in the suburbs in particular that make it so hard to be generous and to live radically different as kingdom people. And Jesus' call to his church is nothing less than that. Regardless of if we find ourselves in a rural context, an urban context, or a suburban context, the call is to live for an entirely different socioeconomic reality. To live a part of the kingdom because we have a different end. We have a different telos. We have a different goal altogether. Now, what's interesting about this and the impact this has on us is that the rest of the world, given some of these stats and given some of these realities, the rest of the world looks at us and sees wealth, excess, and greed. The rest of the world looks at North America and Western culture as a whole. And just thinks, do you know what you could do with what you have? But what we don't do is we don't compare ourselves to the rest of the world. We compare ourselves to each other. So here we are kind of like stuck in this little bubble, this reality within a reality. And we're comparing ourselves to others in our own socioeconomic bracket or in our own culture or in our own community. We're comparing ourselves to a standard of living that we've been told we deserve And for us, particularly in Quebec, the bar is set very low for us. If we're playing the comparison game, the bar is set very low. Quebec is among the least generous provinces and territories in Canada. And it has the lowest median donation amount. Meaning that Quebec is the least generous place to live in Canada. And we live for the pleasures of life. So we have this cultural context that doesn't celebrate generosity. It doesn't celebrate giving. It celebrates accumulation. It celebrates getting. And this also shapes the church. These cultural trends shape the Western church. It's a little bit dated now, but I remember Time Magazine did a survey back in 2006 And it showed that 61% of professing Christians in America in particular, which still applies to us, 61% of professing Christians believe that God wants them to be prosperous, that God wants them to be financially prosperous and wealthy. 31% believe that if you give money to God, he will ultimately give you more, that it's just a simple formula. You give to God, God gives back. That God is kind of, you know, sugar daddy or or karmic principle at work. 17% believe in the prosperity theology that is so common in our Western context. And believe that prosperity theology is in line with Jesus' gospel. And in line with Jesus' teachings. And last, today, 4 out of 10 evangelical churches in America preach and practice some version of prosperity theology. Prosperity theology being this idea that the good life that you ultimately want, that God is not only wanting to give it to you, but he's almost, he's had his arm twisted so that he must give it to you. And that if we send prayers up, that blessings are guaranteed to come down. That if we have enough faith and kind of come to God with enough faith, we'll just whack God, the piñata, with faith and blessings and candy will come out. But is that in line with what Jesus teaches? Is that in line with the good news of the gospel? With the true kingdom of God? We're going to look at that over the rest of this series. But the point, just a close kind of introduction... The point isn't that having wealth and living here and living in the suburbs is wrong or that being here is sinful. The point though is that to those who have been given much, much is required. And you and I, church, are the ones who have been given much. The point isn't to sit and feel guilty about this and kind of had suburb, suburban shame or Western shame. The goal is to look and say, wow, I'm so humbled by what I have been given. I'm so humbled by what God has allowed me to enjoy. And we see this all throughout scripture. That we see unfaithful rich people and faithful rich people. And we see unfaithful poor people and faithful poor people. So the issue is not money. The issue is not possessions. The issue is not what we have. The issue is always and only what we do with what we have, how we live in light of what we have been given. There are so many examples across scripture of faithful yet wealthy people like Abraham, like Joseph, like Job, like King David and King Solomon, like Joseph of Arimathea and Zacchaeus, who are all wealthy and faithful. Wealthy people who don't just sit on their wealth and enjoy it for themselves, but look to be faithful with what God with what God has given them. The Bible never teaches that money and wealth is bad, but it does teach repeatedly that money and wealth can be dangerous. And often the Bible verse is misquoted. It's that money is the root of all kinds of evil. But really that verse says it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think that is the Bible's thesis on this topic, that the love of it, the desire for accumulation and more and and stuff for me, ultimately isn't about the stuff at all, but it's about how I see me. So let's get into Jesus's first teaching on this topic in Matthew 6. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle based on this teaching in Matthew 6. And here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 19. Do not store up treasures here on earth. Just don't do it. Where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven. Where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also continues, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? It continues, no one, underline that, highlight it, double tap it. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, if you notice at the beginning of these verses, Jesus starts with the negative, tells us what not to do, and then follows it up with what to do. Starts by saying, don't treasure things on earth and positively treasure things that are in heaven. Now, first, first of all, what we see is that Jesus does want us to store up treasure. That Jesus does want us to live a life of enjoyment of the things that we have. But not just the things that we have. Jesus wants us to store up treasure, but treasure that actually lasts. Jesus is saying to us, storing up treasure on earth isn't success. It's settling. Getting a whole bunch of things here for this life in this life, isn't successful. It's actually settling. Settling from what we have truly been created for. The treasure and the enjoyment that we were created for. That you and I were made for so much more than just a strong RRSP, some shiny stuff, renovated bungalows in the burbs, and a comfy retirement. And that there's something about the human condition that knows this. That as we get more, more wealth, more stuff, more money, we grow less and less full of life. And Jesus is promising us that if you shift your view of treasure and you treasure things that actually last, that life that is truly satisfying is ours. And it's also a promise that you and I will treasure something. We can't help it. That the treasure is where our heart is. That our significance and our security and our stability and safety all come from something. So this isn't just a religious question about what do you believe to be true about God. This is a a lifestyle reality of every human being. That you and I do have a treasure. That when we look at how we spend our days, our time, our energy, our money, where we give our bodies, how we give our attention, that ultimately you follow the yellow brick road to the end and you will find the treasure that you are seeking after. Your treasure is where your thoughts go when you're alone, it's the objects of affection that you dream about. Your treasure is often on the end of the sentence, If only I had, or If I had, then. If only, fill in the blank will bring us to our treasure. And it's very subtle. And it can hide. We end up telling ourselves that if only we had something, then we would be satisfied. If only we got that, or this much money, or lived there, or had this job, then I would experience life. But what the Bible does for us is takes earthly treasures and gives it another name. Gives them another name. The Bible calls earthly treasures... Idols. Earthly treasures are anything that you and I trust other than God to give us what only God can. And it's almost always a good thing. A career. Ambition. Influence. Romance. Sexuality. Material possessions. A great neighborhood. Our family. Approval from others. None of those things are bad things. But when we look to those things to promise us significance... And security and safety and ultimately life, they are bad things. They become bad things. So idols are things that promise us life and underdeliver. deliver Makes big, big promises and ultimately under-deliver. Why? Because they weren't created to do that. That all good things come from God and those good things are meant to point us back to the ultimate good. God Himself, and notice that when Jesus talks about money here, he doesn't just say money. He says what money can buy, and he breaks it down into three categories. You saw that moths and rust or thieves, and he's saying if if moths, rust, or thieves can affect what you live for, it's not worth giving your life to. If you look and say, here's what I'm living for, and you fill in the blank, if that can rot or rust, or someone can take that away from you in a heartbeat, it is not worth giving your life to. And what may be under that is an idol, an earthly treasure. And throughout the Bible, this talk about idolatry and idols, money is the most repeated idol in the Bible. So hear me on this. Not only is money the most popular topic and teaching of Jesus, Not only is greed the most mentioned sin throughout the Bible, but money is also the most repeated idol that we are warned of throughout Scripture. And history shows us exactly why. Time and time again, generation after generation, the promise and allure of money, the pursuit of happiness and keeping up with the Joneses and living the good life leads us to despair. Because we were created for so much more. And what money does is over promises and under delivers. Earthly things and earthly experiences and temporal things that are temporary promise us eternal treasure and ultimately disappoint. And those things were only meant to whet our appetite for what truly satisfies. Temporary treasure can never replace eternal treasure. Earthly treasure can never amount to heavenly treasure that's jesus's point here and as i mentioned randy alcorn in his book the treasure principle says it well based on this teaching and here's what he says when jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth it's not because wealth might be lost it's because wealth will always be lost either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die no exceptions and that's very sobering, and that's what Jesus is getting at. I remember reading a story about John Rockefeller, who's arguably one of the wealthiest Americans of all time, who died in the 1930s. After he died, somebody asked his accountant. I mean, imagine being the Rockefeller estate accountant. Somebody asked the accountant, how much money did John leave? The accountant's answer was awesome. Well, he left all of it. And isn't that true, though? That earthly treasure ultimately will be exposed to moths and rust or thieves. That we can't take it with us. That that we have it to be used. And if we just settle for it, that's all we have to look forward to. And Jesus is shifting our attention from temporary to eternal. He's shifting our attention from me to others. He's shifting our attention from ownership to stewardship. And over And over and over again, Jesus does this. But why? Well, because the whole story of the Bible is that there's only two things that have eternal value. There's really only two things that have a forever value. And that's God and people. God himself and his image bearers. And all throughout scripture, some of the major teachings underline this. When Jesus is approached by a young lawyer And asked what the greatest commandment is. What is the answer? Love God and love people. In the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are often broken down into two categories. The first four can be summarized by love God. And the last six can be summarized as love people. The Bible constantly draws our eyes away from things that would distract us from the only two things that are going to ultimately have eternal value, God himself and the objects of God's love. Now, the thing is, though, when we start thinking about heavenly treasure, storing up treasure in heaven, if you think that heaven is a disembodied state where we kind of float around on clouds and and eat cream cheese and play instruments that don't even sound good, then your idea of treasures in heaven will also be the same. What you'll do is you'll think, no, no, but I am going to live for treasures on earth because treasures in heaven is just kind of ethereal and floaty and non-material. But if you think of heaven biblically and think about heaven as Jesus taught instead of kind of Western Platonic thinking, you'll see heaven as a real, tangible, the realest of places. A fully renewed, a fully recreated reality. A new heaven, a new earth, restored by the resurrection power of Christ. If that's the case, then your view of heavenly treasures changes dramatically. Because we're not just throwing it into the air somewhere. We're investing everything that we have for eternal life, for eternal value. That we're ultimately giving everything back and investing everything we have for God and others. For God and his goodness and those that he has bestowed his goodness on. It's amazing. And Jesus is trying to draw our attention away from things right under our nose. To those things that we can look forward to forever. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that we look for forever satisfaction And these things that won't give us forever satisfaction. And the root of this is not just financial or material or contextual or socioeconomic. But the root of this is spiritual. And if you notice how Jesus finishes this passage, we're going to return to these verses throughout the series a bit more. But when he finishes this passage, he says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? I thought we were talking about money. Jesus starts talking about service. Jesus is talking about something more than just money. He's talking about masters, and it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what Jesus is getting at here. But notice what he says no one can serve two masters, that you will give your life to a master that I know in our, in our day and age of, of autonomous beings and me living my life and being free to do what I want and be who I want to be, we believe that we have this never-ending freedom to just live life. But the only freedom we have is the choice to choose what we're going to live our life to. The only freedom we truly have is who we are going to be enslaved to. And so he doesn't just say, You know, most people can't serve two masters, but, you know, I know this guy Phil. Uh, Yeah, he could pull it off. He's saying, no, no, no one can serve two masters. You have one. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to some end at the expense of all others. And the Greek word Jesus uses here for money is so fascinating. And I feel I wish that we have kept we had kept it in most of our English capitalized with a capital M. As money, capital M. Because the Greek word is mammonos. So mammon, sometimes we've heard mammon. And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually using a proper name of a god. A proper name and personifying money as a deity. The god mammon. And he's saying that this is actually a spiritual issue. That this is not just about, well, I mean, that's good for you. I'm glad that that's how you do generosity. I'm going to do it this way. It's like, no, no, no. that our life actually speaks to which God we serve. And it it is exclusive. That no one can serve both God and money. That no one can live a radically generous life and enjoy life in the suburbs unflinching. It's not possible. But notice that Jesus' concern is not money. It's not us having it. It's not us living here. It's not us being wealthy. It's not us having access to more resources than the globe. But about money having us. Jesus' concern and warning is not about us having money. It's about money having us. About money having our heart. About money having our allegiance. About money having our worship. And we were created only to worship one. And that's why he uses the spiritual language of service. Of worship. Of worship. The language is a worshipful language because money is about so much more than money. Money does talk. Money talks, but it talks about our heart. Follow your bank account, follow your pocketbook, and you will find your heart very, very quickly. Look at your budget and you will see who and what is at the center. Money makes promises that it can't keep, that's why it is an idol. Money writes checks that it can't cash, ironically. Money promises to meet all our needs. Money promises to give us a fulfilling life. Money promises to make us happy. Money promises to give us security and stability. Money promises to give us hope and freedom for the future. Money promises to heal our pain and ultimately give us rest. Money talks. Money talks loudly. Money talks clearly. Money says, you can't live without me. Money says, you need me. Money says, without me, you have nothing. But money lies. And Jesus is so concerned that in the kind of hustle and bustle of our day that we can grow unaware of the lies that money whispers. More than anything else, money imitates what only God can provide. Counterfeit promises that only God can actually deliver on. And so Jesus, very strongly, yet lovingly, with kind of just piercing affection, says that you and I will either love, serve, and live for what we have, or we will love, serve, and live for God with what we have. It's never about money. It's only about your heart. In his commentary on Matthew, theologian Phil Riken writes this. And I, I ran into this years ago and it stuck with me. And I want to share it because I think he gets at this at a deeper heart level for us. Here's what he says. When we are anxious about our finances, not trusting God to provide for our needs today and tomorrow, we are in love with money and its power to make us more secure. When our lives are so full of work that we say no to Christian service, we are in love with money as it masters our schedule. When we find our thoughts returning again and again to something we are hoping to buy, we are in love with money and its power to get us what we think we want. When we spend more time complaining about what we do not have than rejoicing in what we do have, we are in love with money and depend on it instead of God to give us joy. When it seems difficult to give up something we want in order to give a full biblical tithe or make a sacrificial gift to gospel work, we are more in love with money than we are with the gospel and what it can do to change the world. Challenging. Sobering, but true. We cannot serve both God and money. But money will show us what God we serve. And for us as a church and for us at Reach Montreal, I want this to be something that we excel at. I don't want generosity to be something that just kind of gets stuck in the background of like real teaching about theology. But that I want our hearts to be shaped and transformed by the radical generosity of our God so that not only do we give to the local church for the mission and vision of the local church, but that we are radically generous with everything we have, that we are radically hospitable, that our sofas and our dinner tables and our porches become places where the gospel is celebrated, that our first thought when we get extra money or the first thought that we have when our paycheck lands in our account isn't bills and what I can buy, but the question of what can I do with what I've had to bring glory to God? What can I do with what I have on earth to have heavenly treasure stored up? How can I invest this into God and others? And if we live like that, God promises to take care of our every need because he already has. So throughout this series, I want us to come back to this. I want us to sit with Jesus's words. And I want us to learn practices that can help us. Help us think through our budget. Help us think through our spending. Help us think through how to give to the church and what to give to the church. And again, some of us are doing so well at this. Continue. Keep going. Others of us, we haven't even started. And I want us to do well and I want us to excel because Jesus asks us for nothing less. So throughout this series, just just pray be humble, be honest, be open with yourself about how much this does affect you and I, because it does. And it's very convicting to sit with these verses and then to look at our weekly life and think, wow, I am so much at the center of everything that I have and I don't want it to be the case anymore. So let me pray for us as a church and for you individually to that end. Father, we're so thankful that you're a generous God, that you're not stingy. You're not stingy with your love, your grace, your forgiveness. You're not stingy with your affection for us. And that you're a God that is so much bigger and so much truer than we know. And I just pray that even as a church, as we walk through this series over the next few weeks, that God, that you would just push your word into our heart. For those of us who are stingy, we struggle with this. We're, we're greedy or we've had just bad experiences with money. Or we haven't been able to make the connection yet between the importance of what we have and what you're doing in and through your church. I just pray that you would just to change us through this series. And for those of us who are, are doing well and we're trying to prioritize this and we're trying to think through all of the ways that we can be generous, that you would continue to encourage that. And that we would see neighborhoods transformed because of that that you would open our heart and that we would open our wallets and that people's lives would be changed as a result because of your generosity. So we love you. We we thank you. We pray especially in a time like this with, with outrage and panic going on in our culture that we would be a people who are generous with patience, generous with a posture towards others who are struggling, who are struggling because they're seeing their stability and security taken away from them, that you would comfort them and that you would use us, your church, to be a witness in a cultural moment that really needs it, needs rest, needs true stability because it's not found in anything but you. We love you, we need you and ask that you would bless all of this and that it would make much of you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.